Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? To the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and this week I'm so happy I get to introduce a new writer to you. Raquel Drosos is the author of Games of Chance, a literary fiction book about Italian-American siblings being raised in New Jersey after a tragedy hits their family. The book spans 21 years and really covers a lot of the themes I love to read about. Family, both biological and found, strength, resilience, starting over, and figuring yourself out. Because we're all forever and ever in the process of figuring ourselves out. Also, as an Italian, I love being invited into another family's approach to the culture, the food, and the age-old debate about sauce versus gravy. And yes, we definitely get into that in the conversation, because I've been wondering about that pretty much my entire life. Raquel is such a cool person, and I'm thrilled to introduce her to you. She published her first three novels as a teenager. I mean, how cool is that? I could barely get to class in high school. I was so wrapped up in the teenage angst. But Raquel found a way to put that drama on the page and probably learn more in the process of those three books than most of us learn in college. We talk a lot about writing process, too. She said she has such a great, no-nonsense approach to getting her work done that I love. And we really did dig into what writing means to us, what happens when characters move into our heads and won't leave, and how this crazy business really is a calling. So I'll stop talking now and just introduce her to you. I know you're going to love her. Hey, Raquel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Anytime. This is fun. I'm so glad you shared your book with me. Um, I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but it's called Games of Chance. And I'd really just love to know how you came up with the concept for it, um, where your characters came from. I know you mentioned uh, before that a couple of your characters were from previous novels, and I love when that happens. So I was fascinated by that. So yeah, tell us about the book. Yeah. So Games of Chance, I feel like had two beginnings. So when I was 23, I started writing about Amelia, who's one of the three siblings in the story. So there's a 
two brothers and a sister. They're adoptive siblings, but for the purpose of the interview, we'll just call them siblings. Um, and Amelia kind of just waltzed into my head. She was this really disciplined, driven runner who was very self-critical. Um, I thought she was really interesting. I wanted to put her in different situations and see how she would handle making mistakes because I knew that would be something that would be difficult for her. Um, I started writing about her and then eventually I had this idea like, hey, what if Seb and Alex were her brothers? And that's when I started writing Games of Chance. So to back it way up, Seb and Alex were the main characters in a novel I was writing in high school. So this is like 2004 that I started writing about these two people. Um, The novel I was writing in high school had nothing to do with the plot of Games of Chance. The only thing that was the same was the dynamic between these two characters. Um, I never finished that novel from high school, but I always had these two boys in the back of my mind and wanted to return to them. So in that story, like in Games of Chance, they were brothers, but they were not brothers, but were raised as brothers. Um, And they always had these opposite personalities with Alex being really charming and outgoing and, um, you know, charismatic and lucky, uh, but also selfish. And with Seb being very pessimistic and brooding um, and thinking things would never work out for him, but also a reliable friend. So I thought their dynamic was really interesting. And when I stopped writing that original novel, I kept trying over the years to put them somewhere because I just knew I needed to put them somewhere. And eventually when I had Amelia and I thought of you know, started crafting her family, I realized these three characters could do really well together. So that's where it started. That's very cool. And I love when characters come back and just won't let you put them in a drawer somewhere and they just, they are adamant to get their story told. I love that. Um, And I did notice, right, I thought it was really interesting without giving too much away. I thought it was really interesting how Alex and Seb both kind of, I don't know, turned out a little bit differently than their younger personas suggested or their stories turned out a little differently than their younger personas suggested. Was that kind of on purpose or was that just how they came to you? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that with Alex specifically, I kind of had this, um, idea in my head when I was working with him of like, he really fascinated me because from the beginning, he's the kind of person that things tend to work out for. And I always thought like, you know, somebody who's really smart and things tend to work out for them and they have a good heart, but if things continue to be easy for them for too long, like how would that affect them as a person? So for Alex, that was kind of his journey to kind of life challenging him eventually and seeing how he would respond to being challenged. Um, And with Seb, um, he, yeah, he, like you said, kind of had an opposite trajectory where like, how can you learn to be brave and to embrace life when you've started life with such a difficult situation and such a difficult path. So, um, in terms of the way the plot turned out, like I always knew certain things that were going to happen and I always knew the end of the story, but other things just developed, you know, throughout the process. Hmm. I liked Amelia too. Cause I, I did see a lot of my younger self. I was not a runner, but let's get that straight, <laughs> but, but the, you know, self-critical and the very disciplined and the really, really hard on yourself. That was, you know, something that I actually resonated with too. Was she, I know you said she came to you first, but does she resemble anyone in your life? I mean, I think that, um, you know, my characters never really resemble like a particular person. They kind of are like a mishmash of lots of different people. I think that some of Amelia's very like driven mentality comes from my younger self too. Um, just like I, I had the tendency before I was like a mom and had kids and realized that like, don't take everything too seriously. Um, when I got like a goal, it was like, this is all that matters in the world. And then growing up and kind of growing out of that mentality made me see it in a different light and see like, wow, what if I was even more extreme 
And what if I applied it to this and to that instead of just to like writing, for example. So, um, yeah, I kind of explored, I guess, some of some of the darker sides of myself with her, but also gave her traits that I don't have and had her make decisions that I wouldn't make. So, yeah, yeah. that part was interesting. Yeah, I'm totally the same way. Like the way I create characters, I there's a couple of instances. So I write murder mysteries and there's a couple of instances where there are people that I came across that really just deserve to die. And I had to just <laughs> make a carbon copy of them, put them in the book and kill them just for my own satisfaction. But usually they have characteristics from a bunch of people. And I just think it's really interesting when, you know, people I know try to find themselves in a character or something. And it's, <laughs> it's just, it's, I think it's a, it's something that writers deal with a lot. They, people are trying to figure out if you're using them in your books or do you ever, do you ever hear that from friends or family? Oh yeah. Like everybody, when I, when I first, you know, came out with this book, everyone was like, Oh, it's this Italian American family. And it's a girl with two brothers. That's you. That's your life. It must be you and your brothers. And I was like, no, that's not, that's just a coincidence. Like, I guess it sounds like an excuse, but it really was not based off my life or my brothers. Um, so people do ask me that a lot. And I like to say that, um, a lot of the vibe of the story, like the family vibe, the bond between the siblings, the Italian American vibe is authentic and is like related to the way that I grew up, but the people are not people I know and the situations are not situations I went through. So, I mean, we always put a little bit of ourselves into what we write, but it's not like a carbon copy of our life. So, yeah, for sure. All right. So there's so much to, to dig into here, especially the Italian American stuff, which I totally resonate with. So I just want to back up for a little bit um, because we do, we share that heritage. We share this love for writing. I think we have similar backgrounds and that we both, it sounds like started writing super early because um, mm -hmm. you talk about, you wrote your first few novels in high school, right? Yeah. which is really impressive. So when did you know that writing was your calling? And tell us about those original novels. Um, so I always was writing as like a hobby. Like um, I wrote my first book when I was five, which was three sentences, but I considered it a book. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> and throughout my whole childhood, I wrote short stories. I wrote plays for my friends and I to act out. Um, and then when I was 14, I started writing my first novel, which was actually kind of like two novellas because it was uh, a novel and then it's sequel and they were short enough that I put them into one book together. Um, and it was during the course of writing that book that I really realized I had that moment where I realized that this was my calling, um, that it wasn't just a hobby like some of the other things I was doing. Because when I was writing, I found I was in the zone so much. Like I was in this complete focus um, and this flow state that I didn't get from anything else, no matter how much I enjoyed it. I never had that complete you know, focus and that complete immersion in what I was doing. And so I wrote this great journal entry that I wish I could find. I don't know where it is when I was 14 <laughs> being like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a writer. And you know, this is like, it, it calls to me and that kind of thing. So, um, ever since then, I knew that this was a really important part of my life that I would always be doing it. And even though, you know, I had some ups and downs and at times thought, you know, maybe I should give it up or it could never be a career or things like that. I always return to it because it's always still like something I'm compelled to do. So yeah. And my first three books that I wrote from the ages of 14 to 16 were young adults. They were kind of like thriller suspense kind of stories. Um, they have like an element of mystery, but they're not really like well done mysteries with like a really well-crafted, you know, twist or anything like that. They were mostly just, um, you know, suspenseful plot driven kind of stories. Um, and that's different than the way I write now, which is way more character driven and is more literary fiction. Yeah. So I have to tell you, so two things. So first, when you said your journal entry, I remember a paper, I actually still have it. I don't, I had, don't have a lot of stuff from when I was a kid, but I do have this paper that I wrote. I think I was in like, I don't know, fifth grade or something. And it talks all about how I'm going to be a New York times bestselling author and how there's going to be a line of people coming to get their books. Signed. It's really funny. <laughs> 
It's great. <laughs> yep, it was funny. That's good um, that you saved it. That's good that you I have. know, right? <laughs> Yeah. And then the other thing that I just wanted to share, cause you'll probably think it's funny. I'm so used to reading mystery. I read a lot of mysteries and crime and thrill, you know, cause I'm just always immersed in it. Plus I'm a little weird like that. And I do like, you know, murder. Um, so <laughs> at the end of every chapter, I'm like, Ooh, okay. The next chapter, someone's going to get murdered. And I, it took me a few chapters for me to be like, no, I'm not reading that kind of book right now. <laughs> Stop <laughs> waiting for people to die. <laughs> So yes, I enjoyed it very much. It was very different than the things I've been reading lately. So, <laughs> Thank you. so yeah, so we've actually been talking a lot about genres here on this podcast lately. So did you make a conscious decision to switch to character driven literary fiction or again, did it just kind of work out that way? Cause you were just started to write that way. I think that, um, I always was very fascinated with characters. So even though my earlier books had like more exciting, flashy kind of plots, which sometimes were unrealistic because I was a teenager. But anyway, um, I was still really like what connected me to each book was still the characters. And then as I grew up and realized that, you know, um, stories about people just living their regular lives are interesting. They don't necessarily have to be um, extraordinary stories or crazy plots or anything like that, that I've always been very fascinated by people. And like I said, you know, growing up and seeing life is interesting and people falling in love is interesting and people making bad choices when they're young is interesting. I think I just kind of gravitated towards that kind of path. And I've always started my stories with characters, with people in my head, talking to me, talking to each other, and when I'm interested in them, I start following them. So I think it was kind of a matter of time and a matter of like growing up and changing my writing style that I arrived at literary fiction. Mm, I like that. So kind of similarly, your, your book is clearly about family, um, blood relations, but also, I, I don't know, I feel like in some ways it's about found family too, since Seb and Amelia didn't really know the extended family that they landed with, even though they were blood relations. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. And, you know, it's definitely also about strength and resilience and finding yourself and all of that. Did So did you have all those themes in mind or did they just naturally again come out of the characters? Um, yeah. So usually I don't start with a theme. I just you know, I thought that Seb, Alex, and Amelia were very interesting together. I liked the way they interacted. I liked the way they would react to things that happened in totally different ways. Um, and then, but as I started writing, um, I knew, what, you know, I was going to focus on these siblings. And then it sort of grew out of that as being a focus on family. Um, and I've always, like, had a lot of interest in, I'm trying to think of how to put this. Like, I grew up with a very close-knit family. And I never really saw close-knit families portrayed in books. Usually families and books are very like dysfunctional and everyone's stabbing each other in the back and that kind of thing. And I think that's interesting too, but I really wanted to try to represent a family that even though they're flawed and even though they make mistakes, they're trying to be there for each other because that's the way that I grew up. And I wanted to see people like that in, uh, in fiction. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, that sort of grew out of the idea of a first of siblings and what siblings mean, then what does family mean? And like you said, since they're a found family, what does family mean? Like is family about blood is family about your choices and your loyalty and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the fact that they're Italian American, you know, there's, I think there's a lot there too, because I, I, our families sound maybe a little different. You know, mine was close, but it wasn't a big family really. And, you know, there were parts of my family that I wasn't close with. Right. So I don't feel like I had that big extended Italian family that you see on all the TV shows. Right. And, mm -hmm. and all of that. So like how, um, was that your experience? And, you know, was that part of like that family element for you, that, that Italian kind of persona that, um, that people kind of expect? 
Yeah, I think that I definitely, um, mostly when I talk about my family, it is like you said, smaller, like about my parents, my siblings, that kind of thing. But I did have an extended family too, with my grandparents, my cousins who all had an influence on me. And definitely you could imagine like the big Sunday dinner thing. Like we did really do that. That's real. (laughs) Um, and I, I also grew up in a very Italian American town. So like even people in my town who were not Italian American, had a lot of the same like values and a lot of the same traditions because there were so many Italians in the town that we all kind of adapted the same culture. Um, and I, similarly to what I said before about wanting to see my family in novels, I also felt like, you know, I'm very proud of my culture. Like I'm I could talk about the food and the accent for like hours. Um, and whenever I saw Italian American families in the media, it was always like mob stories, which yeah. I enjoy mob story too. <laughs> but like, I just felt like that's not the only story there is to tell about Italian Americans. You know, we have very interesting customs that have nothing to do with crime. So I wanted to represent my culture <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. Positively, you know, and like realistically too, you know, so. Yeah. So I, I think there is probably something wrong with me because to me, the most fascinating part of the Italian heritage is the mob thing. And I remember <laughs> my, <laughs> I don't know, I've always been fascinated by the mob. I remember when my dad found out that I was watching the Sopranos, he was so mad at me. He's like, that is not real. And, you know, I'm like, yes, it is. Come on. We all know it's kind of real. <laughs> I feel like, you know, there is an element of that. I think I had a great uncle who might have, you know, been dabbling in a few things, but (laughs) I don't know. I just, I love that stuff. So what other element, I mean, let's, we're going to definitely talk about food like separately, but what other elements of Italian American culture, like, did you feel were necessary, especially from the New York, New Jersey area, right? Because my family grew up in the the Boston Italian culture, you know, is the New York, New Jersey different? Yeah, we we should definitely talk about Boston too, because there is some of the book in Boston and I'm interested to see from you, like what you thought of that as a native person from that area. Um, Because I grew up primarily, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. I still live in New Jersey. So this is my, you know, area of expertise. Um, But I talk a lot about the accent because I found that everywhere I've gone in the world, other than, you know, Northern New Jersey, I get made fun of for the way that I talk. And I was always very (laughs) proud of the way that I talk. I think it's cool when people have accents um, and that like, it's like a signpost of where they're from. But like, even when I, I lived in Italy for a brief period and I would speak Italian, but my accent still sounded like this and people would be like, oh, you're from New York. Like they would know from, <laughs> from Europe. But, um, yeah. so I talk about, um, the way we pronounce things like talk and chocolate and dog and, um, the way that like, there's certain words that are like Italian American words. Like instead of saying like mozzarella, people say like mozzarella or instead of prosciutto, it's prosciutto. And these are not really Italian words. They're like our own dialect, like an Italian-American dialect. So, and then we could get into the gravy thing later too. But I just think that um, that I, I, that's a fascinating part of our culture that, um, I don't know, that I've always found interesting. Um, and I wanted to show that, like, you know, I was proud of that. And that's something that I think is interesting. And I have at one point in the story... Seb connects with another character who is from Brooklyn and has always hidden her accent because she was embarrassed of it and thought she didn't sound intelligent because of her accent. So, and she sees that Seb, who's also intelligent, isn't really embracing that part of himself. Um, and that like changes her perspective on him. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. And in Boston, I remember I was seven years old. I was in an airport. I think floor, I think my parents had taken us to Disney or something. And I was standing in the airport and I was talking to my mother and uh, some some complete stranger kind of smiled at us and said, are you guys from Boston? And I remember looking at my mother and saying, how does he know where we live? <laughs> it was totally because of the way I was talking. And, you know, then later when I was in my 20s, I 
became friends with someone from uh, Louisiana. And whenever I went down to visit her in New Orleans, her family and everybody was just fascinated by me, like to the point where I'm like, okay, I have to change this accent because it's <laughs> annoying now. Cause everyone's like, Oh, say that again. Right. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely truth to that. And I thought your, um, your parts about Boston were really spot on. I mean, there are those little bars where everybody just hangs out and that's the only bar they go to and they don't like to leave their little part of town. And I, I definitely thought you captured that really well. Okay. I'm glad. Yeah. No, I, um, <laughs> I, I talked to a lot of people from Boston because I knew I wanted to set that bar in Boston because of, um, first of all, wanting to incorporate a little bit of a different culture into the story too. And also because I want Alex to go to MIT. So I had a, I did like research by talking to friends like, okay, what neighborhood should this be in? What kind of people live there? So I'm glad that it, you know, it resonated. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I was wondering, cause I didn't catch, maybe I missed it. Was it, was it actually set in the North end? No. So Patrizio, the, the guy who runs the bar used to live in the North end, which is like the okay. Italian area. Right. Yeah. And then he moved to, to dot Dorchester. Um, and he has this, like, oh, that's right. Pocket. It was in Dorchester. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I remember. Seeing, okay. Sorry. I, that slipped my mind, but I didn't see any mention of, um, Mike's pastry or the cannolis in there. So I was wondering if anybody was getting cannolis, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go there next time I go to Boston. Like Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, since we're talking about food now, let's just go right to the food. So, all right. Before we even get into broad food, I have had this question since I was a little kid, because I did hear people not in my family call tomato sauce gravy. And for me, like we didn't call it that we called it sauce. To me, gravy was the stuff you poured over chicken. Right. So we, how, do you have any idea like where the difference in that, in that comes from? Like, I just, I've never been able to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I know that people will like fight to the death over whether it's sauce or gravy. Like I've been at like those, you know, Italian festivals and people have t-shirts, like it's gravy, not sauce or the opposite. Like it's sauce, not gravy. Like people care enough to make a t-shirt. But, um, I have no idea. And, um, I actually, I taught Italian for a little while in a high school and my students were always like, well, is it gravy or a sauce? And I was like, but that doesn't make sense because those are English words. Like you can't ask me like how to translate into Italian because in Italian, it's just the Italian word. But anyway, my family always grew up saying gravy. Um, and yeah, that was just, that was what we called it. And I knew people who said sauce. I knew people who said gravy, but, um, I do find that when I meet people from other areas, they're like, what's gravy? Like you said, like, <laughs> like those on chicken or turkey. So I wanted to include that little nugget of like Jersey Italian culture that like, that's what we call it. And like, you know, it's an interesting word to use, you know? No, it is cool. And, and I, then I started looking, I, I got very, there was one point where I did get very interested in this topic and I probably spent a lot of time on it that I should have been doing other things, but I remember <laughs> Googling to see if there was any like even canned or, you know, jarred tomato sauce that was called gravy or something. It's all called sauce. So I don't know. I feel like that means we're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or it might just be confusing and people would be mad if they poured red sauce over their turkey on Thanksgiving. I don't know. That could be mm-hmm. part of it too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so was food like super important in your family? I'm assuming it was right. Cause all Italians are actually, it's funny. Cause I feel I changed my diet pretty extensively, like 10, 12 years ago. So I don't eat gluten, dairy, um, a lot of things anymore. And I, I said to somebody once, like, I don't feel like I'm Italian anymore because I feel like so much of like that culture is food, right? That I just, I don't feel that way anymore. And that might sound weird, but so what did it mean in your family? And, and, you know, how much did food bring you guys together? 
Yeah, it definitely was a big part and is a big part of my family. Um, so gravy has always been, that's my favorite food. Um, and whether it has, you know, meat or not or whatever, I just love tomato sauce. I love gravy. Um, and my dad always cooked it really well. And like, you know, anyone who cooks gravy or sauce knows that this takes a long time, right? It's like a labor of love. It's on the stove for like three hours and um, it takes a lot of patience, you know, to do it right. So um, it was always like a sign of like love in my family to make gravy um, on a Sunday. And I still like my dad makes it the best. I can make it, but it's not as good as the way my dad makes it. But yeah, I think that for Italians, you know, like coming together at the table is a really big thing. What you're eating is a big thing, but also just like the act of like eating is not only about like putting food in your body. It's also about like togetherness and like just celebrating being alive and celebrating being together. Um, and I would have friends that like never really understood this, like from, from other cultures, like, you know, they'd be like, Oh, let's talk on the phone at this time. And I'd be like, well, that's dinner time. And they'd be like, you can eat while you're on the phone. I'm like, no, but dinner time is like an event. Like you can't be on the phone, you know, like so <laughs> that's really how I grew up. Um, and my family always had dinner together, um, like every night. And then on Sunday we had dinner with like my grandma and my cousins and everything for many years. We don't do it anymore. Cause now there's like 500 people. So <laughs> too many people, but, um, yeah. And like with my own kids too, like I have two kids, they're six and four. We eat dinner together every night too. And I think that's really important. And even though sometimes we might eat like later than we're supposed to in terms of bedtime, whatever, I like think that sitting together at the table is a really nice thing. Um, and so in games of chance, like a lot of important scenes and conversations happen around the table. Um, and the, you know, family table is kind of like a symbol for people coming together, um, you know, being together and that kind of thing. Yeah. I love that. So it was Wednesday also Prince spaghetti day, or was it just Sunday in your house? um yeah we just i mean we had pasta a lot overall but like gravy was a sunday thing but other kinds of pasta or all the time (laughs) okay we we always had it um during the week as well so it usually was wednesday night i don't know if that was on purpose or if it just happened that way (laughs) but you definitely had had all that um Mm -hmm. that's really interesting okay now i'm really hungry so we're gonna talk about something else (laughs) so all right so you said this book took you 10 years to write So talk about your process there. Yeah. So it was a long haul. Um, basically I started it, like I said, when I was 23, it was like the real official start, even though the other characters were from years before that. But, um, I was 23. I was like, I was single. I was living at home. I was working part-time in a couple different places, trying to figure my life out. And then by the time I finished, I was 33. I was married. I had two kids. I had my own house. I had switched careers multiple times, um, eventually becoming a stay at home mom, which is what I am now. So my life was very, like a lot of different changes happened in my life during those 10 years. Um, so I had to take a lot of breaks while I was writing it. Um, but I kept coming back to it because I knew that I had to tell this story. And I think that, uh, in retrospect, the fact that it took me 10 years was actually a benefit to the way the story turned out because I wrote the earlier scenes when I was younger and closer to like adolescence and those kind of things that the characters were going through. And then wrote the later scenes when I was in my thirties and they were close to 30 and they were making more adult decisions. So I think that there was a lot of like authenticity to each part of the story that happened because I like grew up with the characters in a way. Um, so even though I hope I don't take 10 years to write in the next book, um, I think that overall it actually turned out better that I didn't churn it out right away. Yeah. I remember an author saying to me once, um, it takes as long as it takes, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't force it. Um, I think it's yeah. cool. I have a book I've been working on for a really long time too. And between contracted books and, um, 
I mean, I started that one in 2018. I mean, it's been through a bunch of rewrites, but you're right. Like as you evolve, I think your approach evolves, your, obviously your knowledge evolves, your, your writing gets better and you just find better ways to tell the story. So, um, cause my book, that book, the first iteration of it did almost get published by a small press right before I started, right before I got my first contract for my other books. And I always say like, I'm so glad it didn't get published because it kind of, it fell through at the last minute, but, um, I feel like it just wouldn't have been the right time and it definitely wouldn't have been the right story. Yeah. I think that's really a really good point. And I think like, you know, even going back to me thinking about what I was writing in high school and how I gave it up. And at the time felt so devastated that I was giving it up, but really I wasn't giving it up. I was like letting it sit, you know, and like letting myself change enough, you know? So I think that's really cool that you're still working on what you're working on. And I think those are sometimes the best ideas. Yeah. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so were you working on other stuff at the time or, or was that really your main project and you weren't working on anything else? That was really the main project. Um, I just had so little time that I was going very slowly. Um, a couple of times I felt like, okay, no one's going to read this. So I'm just going to give it up and write something that's more like trendy and like interesting. And I would try to write something that I thought would be more like marketable and get, you know, a chapter in and be like, I don't care about this. I'm going back to my other book. Yeah. So a couple times I tried to give it up, but I always knew like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't give them up. Like seven Alex were like knocking on the door, like, come on, you know, you have to write about us. So, yeah. um, yeah, so it really, it was, it was that the whole time, um, just like a slow process. It's so funny when they won't leave you alone too. I, I was just re-listening to, um, big magic by Liz Gilbert. I don't know if you've read it, but she talks about the big idea and how the ideas come from wherever they come from and they find a person and, you know, it's, you have to either address the idea and maybe the idea will stay with you if, you know, you're taking care of it, but if not, it might go visit someone else. It, she explains it a lot more eloquently than that. But, um, you know, she says if the idea, like if you can't, if you're not paying the right amount of attention to it, or if it's just not working, it's going to go somewhere else. But if it keeps coming back to you, then it's your idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool concept. Um, yeah, I believe that. I definitely believe that. I believe that these stories like choose us and they're like, you are the one who has to tell this story. So like, you know, I'm not going to leave you alone until you tell it. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so I, readers always want to know too, like, what your writing process is, right? That's like the number one question I get. So I'm sure yours has changed over the years as you've, you know, with your kids and all that, but I'd love to know, like, do you, when do you write? How do you write? Do you have a daily word count? Do you devote a certain amount of time? Like, how do you approach it? So, um, I try to write every day. I try to wake up in the morning before my kids get up and write then. Um, it doesn't always work. It depends. Like if my kid gets up at six, then it's like, well, that's the end of that. But, um, I, I find that the morning's best for me because like nothing has happened yet. And I have a clear enough mind to just do what I have to do. Um, and then throughout the day, it's very hard for me to get time. Um, sometimes if my kids are in school, my, my son was only going for like a half a day, two ta- two days a week. So it was very limited time that I had this year, but next year he'll go a little bit more. Um, but if they're in school or if like they're taking a nap or something's going on, uh, I try to just squeeze in writing whenever I can, even if it's like 15 minutes, I just like put on my headphones and I'm like, everybody leave me alone for a few minutes. And I get right into the zone. I don't need like a ritual or anything. Like I just need time. Um, I don't have like any kind of, um, goals in terms of like word count or like where I need to get to every day. I just try to as much time as I have, I work. And then I just see the next day I try again, you know? So I think that's why it takes me a while to write things. Cause I don't have as much time. Um, 
I would love to have like eight hours a day to write. That sounds like the most amazing life ever. Um, maybe I will one day, but um, right now I think that that having a limited schedule at this point in my life actually helps me because I really like don't waste time. Like I just write, I don't like think about it. I don't worry. Like, is this good? I just like do it. Um, whereas when I was younger and I had lots of time, I would procrastinate and like doubt myself. And now I'm just like, there's no time for this. Sit down, type words. Like, <laughs> so, like I think it's good for me, you know, not to think about it too much. <laughs> That's amazing. Cause I have like n- not a lot of time either, but I still manage to procrastinate and question myself and, you know, screw around. And some days I feel like I'm just not getting it done. How do you, is it just, is that just your personality? Cause I want some of that. <laughs> Can I take something for that? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just like, I think that like, you know, being a mom and being like, you know, having to give up a lot of free time and a lot of things that like you thought were important, but maybe aren't so important, like made me kind of zone in on like, what do I really need and want out of each day? And like the only thing that makes me feel like fulfilled other than obviously like loving my children and my husband and all that is writing. So I just kind of like had to teach myself to be like other stuff doesn't matter. Like you didn't get this shopping done or you didn't get this other errand done. Like you have to prioritize writing, um, when you get time. So I think it was just like a learned skill. I don't know. Um, Yeah. I think that anyone could teach themselves though. If you just, I don't know, like just like focus on the page and focus on the words coming out of your head and not like, don't let yourself like really be part of it. Just let the like flow. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds crazy to say, but like, I I feel like when I'm writing, I'm not really me. I'm just like the vessel that is creating this. You know, if I get in my own head too much, then it's hard to write. Yeah, no, totally. A hundred percent. I, I love that. And I need to get better at that. But I also love like your there's pressure, but there's not pressure. It sounds like, right. Like you're not putting crazy pressure on you. Like I'm one of those people who puts like a ton of pressure on myself. Like you have to finish this book. I mean, sometimes I really do. Cause I have like a deadline and a publisher is going to be screaming at me or, you know, whatever it is. Right. But, um, on, you know, on some level I put a lot of pressure on myself. That's not actually there. So, um, uh, it sounds like you have the pressure to get it done, but you're not putting your, the pressure on yourself to do like a bigger thing with it. Like in that moment, every single day. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think that I, I sympathize with you because like, as a person who doesn't have a contract and doesn't have a deadline, like I have the flexibility to do that. Whereas if I did have like an external pressure, maybe I would be more like, like harder on myself, but I don't. And I know that like, this is just something I love. So I have to make sure I keep doing it and keep working. But that's really the only thing is that I love it. That's like the motivation. I love that. All right. So let's talk about publishing then, because we've also been talking a lot about that here and the different avenues to publication. So you're self-published. How did you decide on that route? Like, is that, are you happy with that? Is that what you're going to keep doing? Um, so when I was a teenager, I self-published those first novels. Um, and that was a very different process because back then there wasn't like Amazon KDP, which is what I use for games Mm -hmm. of chance. And you kind of just had to like pay a publishing house to do the work for you. And it was a little bit easier, but it also was less personal. I like that now you really have if you go with something like Amazon KDP, you have a lot of control or like all the control basically on how, how you price it, how you market it, what the cover is, all that stuff. But that's also a lot of work too. So I originally tried to go the traditional route somewhat. Um, you know, I like queried some agents. I, um, sent some, I sent the manuscript to some publishers. I got a really good rejection letter, which was helpful. You know, they say, is there a good rejection letter? There are, um, which, which like gave me some tips about what wasn't working in my story. And then I went back and fixed those things for the final draft. So I'm glad that I got that letter because it made my novel much better. Um, but I really was kind of impatient, I guess, with the 
length of time it was taking me to get the story out there. I had already written it for 10 years. I was really excited to share it with the world. I had friends and family who were like, we want to read this. And I just wanted it to be out there. So um, I knew that even if I got picked up by an agent or a publisher, it would probably be like a year or two before it was even on the shelf. And I just decided like for this one, I want to get it out there and see what I could do with it. So um, I went through Amazon KDP. Um, I learned a lot along the way, which uh, I like blog about that too on my website because the self-publishing world is very confusing. Um, so I try to like share. So, so is the so is the traditional publishing world. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I thought it was yes, a land where it all works out like, nicely. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> if there is a magical land, I don't have the keys to it yet. <laughs> um, but I'd like to try traditional publishing. Maybe with my next one, I think I'll be more patient in terms of like sending these letters out and querying and that kind of thing because I already at least have the one story under my belt that I feel really proud of. Yeah. That is great, though, that you got a rejection letter with actual feedback. That's very cool and pretty rare, right? Because some some people don't even bother to write you back at all. Never mind. Yeah. You take the time to give you feedback. So that's, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on next? Um, so my next story, I'm, I'm very excited about it because I was so like when I was nearing the end of games and chance of chance of revising games of chance, I was like, what am I going to do now? Cause this has been 10 years of working on this story. And you know, like if I don't have something to write, I'm going to go crazy. Um, but as I was working on it, I had like these two characters like sweep into my brain. I know it sounds crazy, but it's really true. And they were like, Hey, like pay attention to us. We have this stuff to like share with you. And I really like was torn at the time with like, I have to finish games of chance. I'm almost done. But this new story was like demanding a lot of my attention. So, um, the new novel is about two people, a writer and a musician who fall in love and they're raising kids together who are not their mutual kids. So it's kind of like a complicated backstory. Um, but they're learning how to like balance art with parenthood. So obviously that's something that I have experience with personally, but also, you know, the, some of the other struggles that they go through are not directly from my experience, but I was very fascinated in their dynamic. Um, and, and in just telling a story about, you know, about parents who also have like their own identities and what that's like and that kind of thing. So, Yeah. So I've been working on that for almost a year, maybe, yeah, around a year now. Um, but again, it's somewhat of a slow process because of my time constraints. I don't think it's going to be 10 years, but (laughs) it might be another, um, but it's been fun because, uh, this one's written in first person, um, and in present tense, which is so fun because everything's so immediate. So games of chance was in third person. There were three different narrators, but they were, it was still third person. Writing in first person is is something that I really like to do. And like I said, writing in present tense is crazy because it's like all happening right now. So uh, yeah. that's been a really exciting process to change the you know narration style. That's cool. I've never written in present, um, but I do. I I've gone back and forth between first and third in in my books. And I actually the book I'm working on right now is multiple points of view, and some are in first and some are in third. That's been really interesting. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Do you just kind of like, do, do the characters just tell you which point of view to use or? Yeah. I would like to hear your thought about that too, because doing different ones within the same book sounds really interesting. Um, for games of chance, I always knew since there were three of them and also particularly, I guess, since two of them were men, I felt more comfortable writing in third, um, where I still gave the, their like thoughts enough of a flavor to be like personal, but I didn't have to be first person. Um, but then with this story, I don't know. Yeah. The main character just was like talking to me and the way that she talked felt so natural that it felt like, you know, I could step into her shoes very easily. Um, and the first person thing, I guess that just kind of 
kind of unfolded as I was just brainstorming and writing little scenes because so much of what happens when you're a parent feels like so immediate and everything's so about like in the moment, like half the time you don't remember what happened yesterday, even though yesterday was like the biggest day ever. Like it's, it's so, it's so present tense. So I felt like that lended itself well to the story. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I felt the same way about, so the, the book that I'm writing now, the, um, the male point of view for one of my main characters, I write, um, I've been writing him in third and I've never changed that. He's never been in first. Um, my female characters, I have gone back and forth between first and third. And I've decided that most of them, there's probably like five points of view in this, that the, you know, the main, main characters that are female are going to be in first. Cause they just, like you said, I feel like they just come more easily to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. interesting. Do you do like all of the scenes from one person's perspective first, or you do it like linear, linearly? No, I, oh my God, this book, I, you know, it, <laughs> I think it's more complicated with having so many iterations of it out there. Cause I'm trying to like, see what I had before that worked and try to pull in certain things that I'm keeping and then figure out what I'm missing. And, you know, for a while I was like, I was really tripping myself. I was too much in my head trying to think of how best to write this book. And, um, I couldn't, there's so many, it goes back and forth in time, goes back and forth in point of view. There's so many stories that are kind of coming together that it's sometimes it's a little overwhelming if I, if I can't get my head straight about it. So there was one point where I'm like, all right, I'm going to write all of the scenes from this character first and then just see how that goes. But that didn't last either, which kind of brings me to another question for you. Like, do you outline? I kind of like, I kind of do a mix. I, I do. I always know. Okay. Not always. I usually know the end. So with the story I'm writing now, I know the very, very last scene. I don't know everything about the end. With Games of Chance, I knew everything about the end. Like that whole last couple chapters were all like, I knew what was going to happen. Um, and I knew I had to get there. Usually I have like certain like guideposts along the way that I know I need to get to. Certain scenes that I know need to be in the story. Just because like I just feel like they need to be there. Um, and sometimes, and that kind of guides how I go. And then sometimes when I get there, I have to totally change the scene and it's nothing like I imagined it was going to be, but it still guided me to a certain point. You know what I mean? Like it's like little points yeah. along the way that I have to get to. I'm not working into like, uh, nothingness where anything could happen. Um, but I do leave myself open to the, you know, randomness and to like, especially the characters taking me in a different direction and being like, this no longer works because this person is different than I thought they were going to be. So, um, I don't have like a Roman numeral one, like kind of outline, but I definitely have scenes written that I want to get to and like a general idea of where I'm going. Yeah. That's funny. I'm kind of the same way. Like I've, I've struggled for years with the whole, I used to be a complete and total pantser. And then, you know, uh, when I started getting real deadlines, I was like, mm, I don't know if this is going to work. So <laughs> I tried to force myself to be a plotter, but that didn't really work either. So now I'm kind of in the middle. And like you said, I know like, and I have a friend who's really good at plotting. Um, she actually did a podcast with me. I think she was my second episode. And we actually do, um, on another session, we did a whole live plotting session together that um, was for my my membership, which people got a lot of value out of because they could see how we just kind of went back and forth and, and picked out the big scenes and then just kind of started working back from those to fill in the slots, which was kind of cool for, for newer writers to, to see. Um, but I can't, I, I cannot plan out every scene. Like I just can't do it as much as I feel like it would maybe make my life a little easier at the end of the day. I just can't do it. And I feel like it's not, it's something I will never get to. Yeah, I know you have to do do it the way that it works. I like what you said about like the big scenes and then working backwards. Cause I feel like that's somewhat what I'm doing too. Like, I'm like, I have to get here 
so how am I going to get here kind of thing? You know what I mean? Like, I know there's this big scene coming. I don't know exactly where, but I'm getting there somehow, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you have to do whatever, whatever comes naturally. Yeah. And the book I'm writing now, the nonlinear timeline has been helpful because I think you had asked this before and I don't think I answered you, but, um, if I feel like I'm kind of stuck in like a current timeline, I can just kind of flip to a different scene or a different point of view or something, you know, happening in a different time that, you know, so I can at least keep moving forward. Whereas in other books that I'm, that are more linear, I feel like more of that pressure to just keep going from where I am, which makes me stuck if I'm stuck, right. It keeps me in the same place if I'm not sure where I'm going next. So. Yes, that makes, that makes total sense. Yeah. Wait, so do you have like, when we talked about outlines, do you have a thing of like, if you have it jumping around in time, you have like this date and this is going to happen and that kind of stuff. Like, do you have that kind of outline? So I have like, well, again, like I, (laughs) maybe when I do the next book like this, it will be more clear because I won't have started it 15 times. But, you know, at this point, like I have things that I know have happened on a certain time frame. So I have like the plot, the big plot points for those timelines kind of sketched out. And then the current day plot is where I'm still trying to, you know, figure out the big scenes. Like that's because I've changed the story so much that the old big scenes don't make sense. So I'm trying to like figure out the new stuff by kind of going back and revisiting some of the old stuff. But ideally, Mm -hmm. yes, that would be the best way to do it. Have the, have the big plot points on each timeline um, clear yeah, and then just figure out how many scenes I needed. Yeah. Cause that drove me crazy. It was like with games of chance. Cause it takes place over 21 years, you know, from childhood to like late adulthood. And like, you know, it does take place, like there's dates. So things happen in history on those dates too, that I had to acknowledge and things like that. So like I had yeah. this crazy document where I had to keep changing things and changing the years. And then I had to be like, what happened in history on this day? And like, you know, so many, like eventually had to have this really <laughs> extensive outline of like, when was everyone born? When did everybody get married? When, you know, when did all this stuff happen? So I had to have, by the end, I had that. I didn't have that at the beginning, but by the end I needed it to keep me on track. Yeah. Do you use, you said you use Microsoft word for your writing? Yeah, I used to use, use Word. Now I use uh, Google Docs because I like that I can just go on it like anywhere since it's online. I don't have to have my computer. Um, yeah. And I just feel like it's very easy and user friendly and I don't need like bells and whistles. I just need like to see my words on the page. So Yeah, yeah. I know I'm just asking because I, so I use Scrivener and what I really like about it is you can have like each like scene is, is on a separate little like binder card um, and you can move them around and you can put like little headers. So like I always try to put for, for, especially for this book, you know, what uh, timeline I'm in, what character point of view I'm, I'm coming from. And then, you know, if, if it's not in the right place, I can just take that little icon and drag it around. So I'm not like, copying and pasting, you know, all this text. It's just, it's been a lot easier to kind of keep track of stuff like that. So. Oh, that's cool. I've never used that before. I have to check it out. All right. So I've got a couple of rapid fire questions for you before we wrap up. So what's your favorite book on writing? My favorite book on writing. Ooh, that's cool. Um, okay. Let me think for a minute. Um, I don't read too many of them because I find like, sometimes it's hard for me to like crystallize my own ideas on writing when I read other people's work. Um, I remember as a a young writer, as a teenager, I read the writing life by Annie Dillard, which I loved. Um, I thought there was a lot of really good nuggets of wisdom in there. Um, and like a lot of honesty. I also read, um, letters to a young writer. I think that's the title by Colin McCann. Um, and I love everything Colin McCann writes because he writes like so lyrically, like every sentence is like, I have to underline this. I have to underline this. It's also beautiful. So I like that too. Um, 
So those would be my top two, I would have to say. Cool. What's your favorite author of all time? Hmm. That's tough too. Um, I, I'm not like so much into following a particular author. I have favorite books. Like I really love a tree grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Um, and I've read some of her other work and liked it too. Um, so I really like her and I like Colin McCann. Like I said, I like his, the way that his, his prose sounds like poetry to me. Um, but yeah, I mostly have favorite books more than favorite authors. So yeah, I, those would be the two I would give a nod to. Okay, cool. All right. So I'm assuming this one, you've already kind of addressed it cause it doesn't sound like you get into writing slumps, but what's your no fail way to get out of a writing slump? Um, I just feel like you have to keep showing up at the computer and just doing the work, even when it sucks. And even when you don't want to, you have to keep doing it. I also find that exercising for me is very helpful. Like not when I'm supposed to be writing, but just as a part of my daily routine, when I'm exercising, I get new ideas and I get like motivated again to go back to working. So like if I go a long time without exercising, that's more likely to lead to a slump. So I think that that helps me a lot. I love that. All right. Best piece of writing advice you ever got. Hmm. Okay. Let me think. Best piece of writing advice I ever got. I think kind of going back to the same thing of, of just, you have to do it. Like there's no shortcut to doing the work. You have to sit down and do the work. And that actually came from like a class that had nothing to do with writing, but, um, it was just like a history class I was taking in college. And I remember the professor being like, yes, you have to do this paper. Just sit at the computer and do this paper. Like, and that was what he was telling us all as a class. And he was like, stop wasting time, like thinking about the paper, just write the paper. So I think that that actually is a good advice for creative writing too. Oh my gosh, for sure. I, I'm going to write that down and put it on my computer. Just stop thinking about writing the book and write the damn book. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. What's your fa- favorite song on your writing playlist? Ooh, cool. Um, so I love songs that make me feel like, you know, um, uh, if, you know, this is going to sound kind of sick, but like writing is your only defense against like against mortality. Right. So like, you know, by committing things mm-hmm. to paper, we're like kind of, um, kind of immortal in that way. So I like the, I like this song, um, welcome to the black parade by my chemical romance. When he taught, I don't know if you know that song. Um, when he no. talks about his father taking him to see a march. Um, I don't know my chemical romance. I know it kind of sounds kind of silly, but I was into that whole emo scene, but anyway, no. he talks about, it's really deep. And he talks about him, him going to see, um, a marching band with his father and his father's going, you know, someday I'm going to leave you. And I want you to be part of this marching band that like lifts up the, the broken, the beaten and the damned. And like, he sings about like kind of the way that music is his way of like connecting with people and like beating death. And like, I feel like that's the way I feel about writing sometimes too. Well, that's cool. I'm going to have to go look that song up. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Where can people find you and where can people read your book or buy your book? Um, so you can buy my book on Amazon or you could get on my website. My web- website is RaquelDrosos.com, R-A-Q-U-E-L-D-R-O-S-O-S.com. I also have my blog there um, and I'm on Instagram, Facebook and Goodreads. Awesome. I'll put all that in the show notes too so people can access it more easily. Well, thank you so much for sharing Games of Chance with us and for being on the show. Really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. I had a great time too. Well, that was Raquel. I know we're going to hear much more from her in the future, and I can't wait to read her next books. I hope you really liked our conversation. I hope you'll check out the book. It's called Games of Chance. And also, if you're looking for another blog about the writing life, you can find hers at RaquelDrosos.com. I'll put the link in the show notes, and you can buy her book right off the website if you're interested in reading it, and I hope you are. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Send me a DM on Instagram and let me know, or hop over to KateConti.com and send me a message through the website. And I would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it. 
as a new podcast. It would really mean the world to me to get this information out to anyone who needs it. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, we'll see you next week.